This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name uh, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. We need to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, if necessary, to make sure that uh, we have no uh, unconfessed sin in our life, that is, that we remember, and that we are prepared through the filling of the Holy Spirit and being in fellowship with the Lord to study, focus, concentrate on His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you for our forefathers who formed a government that was based on constitutional law that established the freedom to worship. Father, we pray that you will continue to give us this freedom in this nation, continue to protect this nation Continue to give wisdom to our president, to our leaders, both uh, civilian and military, especially in the conduct of the war against terrorism. Father, we pray for other important uh, needs that we mentioned already this evening for Chris Adair and his uh, time in the hospital and his recovery from his injuries. Also for Jim and Phyllis as they're down in Brazil, that they will recover from the jet lag and that they will have a profitable time of ministry and teaching while they're in Brazil. Also for Doug and Sue while they're up in Minnesota, we pray that you would make this a good time, that the doctors would have wisdom and be able to properly diagnose uh, the situation with Sarah. Father, we pray also for the pastors traveling this week to Southern California, for the pastors' conference, for the speakers, for the board meeting, that you will guide and direct that. Father, we pray for us as we study your word this evening that we would uh, be able to focus, concentrate, think about these things, that we would gain a greater appreciation for the breadth and depth of your word as well as for all that you have provided for us in our own nation, and that we might be also aware of the dangers that do beset us culturally in this nation as a result of the influence of so many pagan ideas into our culture. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we were in Revelation chapter 2, and we came to the 
passage in Revelation 2.5, which is the challenge to the congregation at Ephesus in terms of their response to what has been laid down already by the Lord Jesus Christ in his evaluation of the congregation. Last time, well, let me just read the passage. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly, or as we studied last time, the Greek there is takus, and it should be understood as I will come unexpectedly or suddenly in judgment. I will come to you suddenly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. As we came toward the end of class last time, I focused on the this one clause, the or else, the but if not, literally in the Greek, that is if you don't respond to the admonition of the Lord to confess your sins, get back on target, start growing and advancing in the Christian life again, then there are consequences. There are always disciplinary consequences in the life of a believer whenever we are out of fellowship, whenever we get immersed in carnality and refuse to recover. Now that is a personal application. But what I did last time, I started to move out of that personal application arena into the broader application that is addressed to a local congregation. And when we study the background of this uh, church in Ephesus, we realize that indeed the Lord Jesus Christ seems to have judged them suddenly or unexpectedly in several ways over the next three centuries. In the middle of the second century, there, as Roman soldiers returned from victory over the Parthian uh, armies, they brought with them a plague that just devastated Ephesus. It never became what it had been uh, before that again, although the town continued, the city continued, and of course there was a church there, and we know that there were some significant events that occurred, occurred over the next couple of years. The end to Ephesus finally came as a result of a series of earthquakes beginning in the late uh, 4th, 5th century, and so people had to leave. This is an indication for us that Jesus Christ controls history. And I pointed out that one of the things that really irks and frustrates the unbelieving mind, the pagan mindset, is that God interferes with our life. They really want to exclude God from everything. And this is the agenda of the unbelieving mind, and it is the agenda of the carnal mind. It's the agenda of your mind when you're in carnality as much as it is my mind when I'm in carnality, and that is to think that somehow we can live our life without God's interference and apart from divine discipline and consequences for our actions. Now, when we take that thought, I want to expand that into a little bit broader uh, frame of, of reference, and that is in terms of the history of the United States in terms of what happens on a broader uh, picture than simply the individual or the life of a congregation. And the the way I'm getting to this as an application, because it's not one that most people would jump to when they're reading Revelation 1.5, is that Ephesus was one of the key congregations in the Roman Empire and in the Eastern Roman Empire. 
And as a result of the failure of the believers, not only in Ephesus, but also in other areas of the Eastern Empire, that empire deteriorated into mysticism and degeneracy over the course of the next almost a thousand years, because it wasn't until, what was the date, about 14, I forget, 1456, 1470, it was in May of 1460 or 70-something or other, that Constantinople fell, and that really marked the end of all of that, 1453. But you have the fall of the, you have the survival of the Eastern Empire for quite a while, but it survives, but it's weak, it's been basically destroyed from the inside because there is no there is no truth that is at the core of the culture at the core of the society so as you look at the trends of history what you see is in contrast to how god told israel he would act in terms of the five cycles of discipline now for those of you who haven't heard me teach on this there are five cycles of discipline laid out at the end of deuteronomy for Israel. Now you have to understand those five cycles of, din- uh, of discipline are part of the consequences within a contract. You have the same kind of thing in the contract you sign when you get a credit card that if you don't pay the bill, you will have to you will be uh, charged a certain amount of interest every month. If you don't pay at all, then there'll be other consequences and all those are spelled out within the contract. Now, the same thing happens with your your house. You buy a house, you have a mortgage contract, and in that mortgage contract there are spelled out certain consequences that will uh, you will go through if you fail to pay your, your bill. Now, you take somebody who has, any one of you has a house, a mortgage, and you have your contract, and there are conditions in that contract or consequences that are spelled out in that contract. Now, if I had a mortgage, right now I don't, but if I had a mortgage contract, I would have consequences spelled out in that contract. But your contract isn't my contract. There's only a very broad sense of of an application between your contract and my contract, and that's the idea is that there are consequences for breaching the contract. But the consequences are different because my contract... It's different from your contract. Different bank, I'm different, you're different, yours may be 15 year, who knows? All kinds of differences. Now the way that applies is that the five cycles of dis- discipline only apply to the nation Israel. That's a fresh idea for some of you. See, if you apply that to the church, what you're doing is you're saying the contract God made with Israel in terms of the Mosaic law, and there's not a single person here in this congregation who would say that that any of that applies to us today, right? It doesn't apply today. Why? Because Jesus Christ's death on the cross was the end of the law. And the law is a contract. It's a covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, the Sinaitic contract. It ended. Therefore, those conditions don't apply to anyone today. Understand that. Now, that doesn't mean that there are similar things that happen in the course of nations, that God brings judgment on nations because of how they treat the Jews, because of his plans and purposes in history for any variety of reasons. In the same way, God blesses nations for, for his reasons, for their treatment of, of the Jews. Those who bless Israel, God will bless 
because uh, God will also bless and prosper nations where the word of God is being taught, for there is a significant group of believers who are growing and advancing in spiritual maturity. But when that group of believers shrinks or disappears, then there will be judgment in that nation. And a cycle of various judgments that occur in Gentile nations is actually spelled out. And we'll go there. It's spelled out in Romans chapter 1. And part of that is homosexuality. God says that I will give them over to, and there's three cycles of God giving cultures over to different degrees of degenerative behavior. And that's part of the judgment that God brings upon nations that the Byzantine Empire survived for a thousand years, but it was eaten up with a cancer on the inside, and there wasn't prosperity, there wasn't freedom. It didn't disappear for a thousand years, but God had a purpose in history for allowing it to survive. Nevertheless, there was judgment within the framework. Now, all of that is simply to start us thinking in terms of how God functions in history in relationship to believers. And I think that the principle I concluded with last week is a solid principle, and that is as goes the believer, so goes the nation. That if there is a solid core of Bible-believing Christians who are advancing in spiritual maturity, that the nation in which they operate will be blessed by association because of those believers. We live in an era in our history when that group of believers is shrinking, when that pivot on which history turns, which blessing turns, is shrinking. It hasn't disappeared. But as a result of the shrinkage of solid, biblically-based Christianity, we see devastating things happening in our culture as a large. So there have been major cultural shifts that have taken place over the last 50 years. Since the close of World War II, American popular cultural Civilization has been on a rapid decline as it has become more and more anti-biblical and anti-God. And so I, I concluded last time by looking at the overall idea that if you're a Christian, you come to the Bible and you learn, you learn the Bible, it does more than give you information about salvation. It does more than give you information about your spiritual life, but it provides for each of us a framework for thinking about reality so that we can, from the strength of that framework, evaluate what's going on around us. Now, in order to do that, we have to learn how to think. We don't just learn what to think, but we have to learn how to think because we're all exposed to many different kinds of ideas. Every day comes to us through the movies we watch, through the editorials we read in the paper, through television shows, just through the ideas and conversations of the peers that we hang around with. And we have to have our guard up to make sure that we're not letting ideas come in that are purely pagan ideas that will change and erode our basic thinking. Now, that's the, this, these ideas that come in that are not biblical are what the Bible classifies as worldliness. You know, the old simplified uh, fundamentalist said that worldliness was uh, you, don't, you don't drink and you don't chew and you don't go with girls that do. 
or you don't go to movies, or you wear your hair up in beehive hairdos. Some of you are old enough to remember seeing uh, Christian women who would wear frumpy clothes and no makeup and beehive hairdos and think that was holiness, that it wasn't worldliness. And, and there are some Christian schools. I remember the first time I ran into a, a, a college student who was going to a Christian school up north where they were prohibited from, from going to movies and even from watching most television shows. Because that was worldliness. Well, that's not what worldliness is. Worldliness is thinking in a non-biblical fashion. I mean, if we just crank it all down to its most simple definition, worldliness is thinking about anything in life in a non-biblical fashion. We call it human viewpoint or cosmic thinking. When we come to the Scripture, we realize that God presents one unified viewpoint on every area of life, In the Scriptures, from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, there is one unified viewpoint on every issue of life. And the Bible addresses everything from from economics to music to history to finance to uh, law, ethics, morality, all of this, politics, everything is addressed in the Scripture. And we call that divine viewpoint. And part of what we're engaged in as believers when we're growing and advancing in the spiritual life is we have to follow the admonition, the injunction in Romans 12:2, not to be conformed to the world. Now, the term for world there is the word ionos, which has to do with the spirit or attitude of the age. It's not cosmos there, which is a synonymous term. It is ionos, which means the spirit of the age. And see, whatever culture you live in, whether you're living in 19th century America or 19th century Europe or Asia or Africa or Russia, wherever you are, there is a spirit of the age which partakes of cosmic thinking. And as believers, we have to be able to identify what cosmic thinking is all about so that we can critically think about what goes on around us. And I pointed out last time that this has to start with an understanding of the creator-creature distinction. And I'm going to skip ahead one slide and then back up. We start with God. God is the creator of everything. And the Bible describes God as being totally distinct from all creation. He's not part of the process. That's what you get in all kinds of aberrations on Christian theology. Uh, One theology very popular back in the 19th century is called process theology. God's in process like everything else. See, that makes God a part of creation. You have uh, all paganism that you see from pagan mythology, whether it's Asian, Indian, Greek mythology. The gods are the gods of the forces of nature. They're part of creation. They don't stand apart from creation. And so the Bible teaches that God, and the symbol here is a a triangle representing the Trinity and a theta representing theos. God exists as a Trinity, and he is totally distinct from creation, which I'm representing by a circle. And see, everything that goes on in life is in that circle. Everything that we have is inside the circle as we have an understanding of history. And history is important because it is God's work, the outworking of God's plan and purposes for mankind so that the ultimate focal point of history has to do with Jesus Christ and the career of Jesus Christ. The focal point of history is the cross, 
Because it is at the cross where Jesus Christ solves the greatest problem that the human race faces. The greatest problem that any of us faces in our life is sin and our separation from God, which is the penalty for sin, spiritual death. So history can only be understood ultimately... If you understand that Jesus Christ is the focal point, it's all about, especially in the Old Testament, it's all about preparing the human race for the coming of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.4 says that in the fullness of times, he sent his son. Now, what that tells us is that Jesus Christ could not have come in 1000 B.C. He couldn't have come in 600 B.C. He couldn't have come in 586 B.C. He couldn't have come in at 150 B.C. He could only come when he came because God was preparing the world for the arrival of his son, and that didn't happen uh, haphazardly. There had to be not only a preparation of people, but there had to be, uh, in terms of the the nations, for example, the geopolitical situation in, in the world at the time of the first advent with the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, and the roads and communications and networks and everything that was laid down by the Roman Empire over the previous hundred or so years established a situation where the gospel could be spread throughout most of the known world in a rapid fashion. But it took... God had to work through human history to bring about that set of circumstances. But man also had to be prepared spiritually for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Man had to be ready for the arrival of a Savior. And if you study a lot of different religious writings that, that of that time period, there was some sort of messianic, for lack of a better term, because in many of these Gentile cultures they didn't understand the concept of Messiah like the Jews did, but there was an expectation of some great change that was on the horizon. And there was a searching. The the religious systems of the ancient world of the Old Testament had all reached levels of bankruptcy so that I believe that God was allowing the Gentile nations to try out all the various permutations of religious hope in order to demonstrate that they all end in bankruptcy. And so the human race was looking for something. They had been prepared by God to respond to the coming of the Savior. But it doesn't end at the cross because the cross was stage one and stage two is the second advent when the Lord comes back to establish his kingdom. So that shows us that history is directional. It's linear. It's not just some cyclical thing. Now, if you study the philosophy of history, you know that there are many different cultures that have cyclical views of history. The ancient Greeks did. uh, The Indians Uh, did Chinese Asian cultures usually have this cyclical view. It's not going anywhere. So there's no ultimate purpose or meaning to life other than just escaping into some sort of of nebulous, impersonal uh, nirvana where you lose touch with uh, everything. Now, within the framework of history, we understand a lot of different things. I mean, ultimately, even science is based on history. When you take a course where they're dealing with historical geology, they're dealing with origins, what are they dealing with? They have some sort of understanding of the history of man. They have interpreted the data a certain way, so they've they've come up with a certain view of history that 
tries to define and give meaning to man. So, so history becomes the foundation for many different things, for science, which I won't go into, law, politics, and economics. I used those three examples last time. I went through that, and I was ready to go on in our study of Revelation 2.6 and had my notes all ready, and I've studied all week, and I just something kept you know, nagging around the back of my mind all week. And I said, there were some things I just didn't quite get to last week. I could have just gone on. But then I heard on Wednesday that, I think it was Thursday, the Supreme Court was to hear the case dealing with the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. And I thought, you know, this just really fits into this whole thing about, about Jesus Christ controlling history and God being viewed as someone who interferes with history because that's the pagan mindset. We, we try to ignore God. That's ultimately the rationale behind this, and it's been going on for about 150 years in our history, is these movements from the pagan arenas or pagan sectors of our culture trying to remove God. See, if we just ignore God, get Him out of everything, then we don't have to face the fact that we're ultimately accountable to a Creator. And this is what lies at the root of a vast number of things that all can be traced back to the early uh, 19th century. So I thought that in light of what we talked about last time, I would try to bring this together, bring together a lot of things I've been studying. I really want to do a study on God and law and the Mosaic Law as a foundation for law, but I have about 30 more books I have to wade through before I get there, so we may not get there for another four or five years. But there's a few things that I want to uh, just bring to your attention as we, as we look at this. History is really foundational to understand everything. Now, most people have a pretty pathetic experience with history in school, so they just think history is some sort of combination of a bunch of facts and dates and people, and they're just a whole bunch of dead white people, and we don't need to listen to them anymore, whatever it is. We are, uh, history is not that relevant. But history is foundational to the interpretation of so many other things, and you never think about it that way that you have to have an understanding of history in order to really understand and appreciate what's going on today uh, in terms of law, legal development or deterioration, depending on your view, uh, politics, uh, and economics. It's all grounded in that. So with having said all that, I want to go back to a foundational chart that I don't think I've gone through since I've been here, and so we're going to get a little lesson in basics of thought. And this chart has to do with the basis of knowledge. How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? This is called epistemology. That's a tough philosophical term. Uh, epistemology is not the term that everybody uses. You all have heard the term epistemological rehabilitation, and everybody just scratched their head and used it and didn't know what that meant. Well, this will describe to you in some way why that... that I love that phrase. I won't ever use it because most people don't have a clue what it means, but you'll have a better idea after we get through this evening. We have to change the way we think. I remember the first time I heard the term epistemology, I was sitting in a, uh, I think it was a first-year church history class at Dallas Seminary, and somehow we got the 
prof off on the charismatic movement, and he said, well, the basic problem facing Christianity today is epistemological. We are in an epistemological crisis. Huh, what in the world does that mean? Epistemological crisis. Well, how do we know what we know? How do we know that God has spoken? How do we know what the Word has? And this whole area of knowledge, because you see on the... Uh, on the fringes, it's not really the fringe anymore, it's mainstream, you have the whole charismatic movement. And at the core of the charismatic movement is this idea that God is still speaking today. Well, how do you know that? See, there's your epistemology. How do you know God's still speaking today? Well, I know it because I just, I just feel it. Oh, so you're a Mormon. So you have to understand what, what's at the core of Mormonism. How do you know that Mormonism is correct? I remember years ago I went, was up in upstate New York, went to Palmyra, New York, which was the home and birthplace of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is the founder of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormons. And it was on a hillside outside of Palmyra, New York, that he uh, had an encounter with an angel named Moroni, and that angel gave him a special set of glasses, allegedly, and, you know, holy writings, and he got to translate those, and that became the, the uh, Book of Mormon. Well, you ask a Mormon, as we had a, I had a guide who's taking me through the cabin where Joseph Smith grew up and all this, and how do you know this is true? I know it because I've had the burning in my bosom. The burning in your bosom. Hmm. I'm not sure what that is, but see, and I said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Have you always been a Mormon? You grew up, no, 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 no. I was a deacon in a Baptist church for years. Oh, well, my, 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 isn't that interesting? The number one religious denominational group out of which the Mormons get their greatest number of converts are Baptists. Now, why would that be? Because, see, the same issue infects a lot of Baptists as it does a lot of other Christians, which is a soft mysticism. How do you know God speaking? Because I just know it. You know, the, the most egregious example of this is this hymn will never sing at Easter, because, and every other church, evangelical church in, in America will sing it, and that's the song, He Lives. He lives, He lives. You ask me how I know He lives. How do you know Jesus Christ lives? According to the hymn, it's because He lives within my heart. Oh, and everybody gets so warm, feels so good about that. Just praise Jesus. That's not how you know he lives. You know he lives because God said he lives. The Word of God tells us he lives. We have objective revelation from God giving us this information. We don't know it because there's some sort of internal conviction that this is true. As that same church history professor used to say, how do you tell the difference between that and Bad case of gas. How do you know that God has spoken? See, this is the epistemological crisis of our era, and we, got, we didn't just pop into this. It has a history. So we have this chart. Now, this is a little bit different from what some of you have been taught before, but I've expanded on and tried to clarify some things. We have two systems of perception, two basic systems of perception. One is a, what we'll call divine viewpoint, which is revelatory authority. We believe the Bible. Then you have an, three other systems that I've identified on the chart as autonomous systems of perception. And the reason they're called autonomous is because that word autonomous means independent, totally independent of external authority. 
these systems of perception start apart from God. They deny at the very core the creator-creature distinction. At the very starting point, as they seek to know anything about the world around them or explain anything, there is a rejection of God. Whatever data you may have in the Bible is not valid data. So we're just going to start somewhere in that circle. We're not going to go outside the circle to get information about the circle. We're going to start with data in the circle. So we'll break it down into three, three columns. We'll identify the system. We'll talk about the starting point, and then we'll go to the method. The first system is rationalism. There's a very famous painting, I think it's by Raphael, a painting of, of Aristotle and Plato. Aristotle is standing there, and his hand is pointing down, and Plato is standing there with his finger pointed up. And if you can remember that, somebody asked me recently to explain the difference between uh, in, in 30 seconds, explain the difference between Plato and Aristotle. This is it. Plato's pointing up. Aristotle's pointing down. Plato was a rationalist. That means that somehow you start with these innate ideas where he had this ideal world out, out there. And rationalism has a starting point of innate ideas, but it operates on faith. Ultimately, you push a rationalist up against the wall he has a belief in first principles, these innate ideas, well, how do you know that they're right? Well, you just believe it's right. You believe that man has the intellectual ability to properly distinguish between valid and invalid ideas. Now, in rationalism, your methodology is the independent use of logic and reason. And I'm stressing that. That's an important thing to understand. It's the independent use of logic and reason. Now, empiricism is often thought of as the foundation for science, and, 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 and there's a lot of positive things about both rationalism and empiricism. The problem is not rationalism or empiricism. It's when they become autonomous, independent of God, that they become a problem. So an empiricism begins with sense perceptions. How do you know? Well, through my senses. I, I can see things. I can hear things. I taste, touch things. I can learn through observation. And so, of course, this represents uh, Plato is pointing up to innate ideas, the ideal world. Aristotle is pointing down to the earth. Sense perceptions. That's Aristotle. You have your modern counterparts as well. This is the idea of external experience, scientific method, but ultimately it's based on, again, a faith in human ability to properly interpret the data. All the systems ultimately come down to faith. That's one point I want you to go away with. The method, again, is in the independent use of logic and reason, but what's your starting point? Your starting point is either the human intellect, innate ideas, or its sense perception. Uh, but then we get to the real perversion of both rationalism and empiricism. See, historically, you always had this cycle of rationalism, then it goes bankrupt, can't answer the questions. Then you have empiricism, goes bankrupt, can't answer the questions. Well, there has to be meaning in life. Even, even existentialists who don't believe there's meaning in life, can't, who don't believe there is meaning in life, can't live as if there's no meaning in life. They can't live consistently with those assumptions because they do. Then you just have a meaningless existence and nothing, 
nothing matters, and, and, and that's too depressive, so they have to make some existential leap to believe in hope. So if rationalism and empiricism are bankrupt, they have to come up with meaning somewhere so it's just generated from inside, mysticism. And this is always the cycle you see. Rationalism and empiricism historically always end in skepticism. You saw it in ancient, the ancient Greek world. It had gone through the cycles, you were, and that's why you had mysticism and the mystery religions dominating the ancient world when Christ came. They're at the end of the cycle. Somebody once asked me, where do you go after mysticism? You don't. You're at the bottom of the barrel, and there's no way up unless something radical happens from God. And that's what happened is Jesus Christ came back. And so you had a break because of revelation. And then you go through the same cycle again in the Middle Ages, and it ends up with skepticism at the end of the Enlightenment into the 19th century. And 19th century philosophy goes to seed, and you're into mysticism now. The New Age movement, postmodernism, all this is mysticism. Pentecostalism is just secular mysticism with God words tacked onto it. That's why it's an epistemological crisis. So mysticism, its starting point, is some kind of inner private experience, like the Mormons burning in the bosom. Uh, it's, intu- it's, intu- it's based on intuition. I just know it's true. How do you know it's true? It just is. It's just so obvious. I've had this experience. God talked to me yesterday. Well, how do you know it was God? I just knew it. Okay. See, there's no way to... That, the hardest thing, thing about dealing with a mystic is because they've rejected rational, logical discourse. That's their method. They, they've rejected independent... Logic and reason can't get you anywhere, so now they're going to be irrational and non-logical. You can't verify anything, just enjoy the experience. And that's where we are as a nation. Now, in contrast to this, divine, divine viewpoint thought starts with revelation. God has spoken. You know, this is a great introduction to Thursday night. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. After God spoke in former times to the prophets, He has spoken now through His Son. God has spoken. This is one thing that unbelievers in the pagan mindset just hates. It's interference of God. God is involved in history and in our lives. We believe that God speaks. He's there. He is not silent, which was the title of one of Francis Schaeffer's books in his, in his trilogy. We have an objective revelation of God, and we learn it through the use of... See, we don't reject logic and reason like the mystic. We believe in logic and reason, but it's dependent. It's not independent. It starts with what God said. So that when you want to understand history, you want to understand the origins of man, if you want to understand where race came from, you don't go out and do an empirical study and collect data and ignore the Word of God. You start with the Word of God. And the Word of God tells us that at the Tower of Babel you had a division made among mankind based on language. By all this multitude of languages, it would isolate different genetic groups And so by isolating these different groups, certain genetic traits would rise to the surface, and this is the development of race. It is a physical, biological reality. As a result of that, you also had something develop unique to each group, and that is culture, so that you have different cultural groups. If you go to Africa, they looked at life and dealt with life a certain way. Language has has a tremendous interrelationship with 
with worldview and culture. If, you, if you're bilingual or you know different languages and you understand the different cultures, language is related to that. So you have these different, different cultures that seek to, on the basis of their paganism, their rejection of God's information, seek to explain reality independent of God. Uh, just a new news flash today, I heard from a graduate student at a major, major university in an English program who was absolutely fed up with the postmodernism and for the last couple of weeks is constantly being told that race is a social construct. Now we laugh. We laugh because, see, we're looking at the data from a position of revelation-based knowledge. But you look at what's dominating the schools, the universities, the intellectual elites of this country, and they're coming at this on the basis of either autonomous mysticism or autonomous rationalism or empiricism, and they are excluding the Bible as having anything to do with the data that they ought to analyze. So they come. Up, the further you get from the Word, the more divorced you become from reality because the Bible is the only thing that can tell you what reality is. And that's why as believers... The challenge is not to be conformed to the world, but have your mind renewed, renovated by the Word of God, completely overhauled. This is why that phrase, epistemological rehabilitation, is so profound. See, what most people are doing is that they're, they're just trying to change some of the details in their thinking. I liken it to a someone who buys a house, and they say, well, you know, there's a few things about the house I don't like. I want to change the color of the paint in the living room. I want to put in new countertops in the kitchen. I want to, I want to uh, maybe gut one of the bedrooms upstairs, combine two bedrooms so we have a larger bedroom, come in and you know, tear out the bathrooms, overhaul the bathroom, and then everything will be okay. And that's how most Christians approach the Christian life. And they, they know their problems in their life. They may have some problems emotionally. They may have some problems in their marriage or drugs or alcohol or they just feel depressed. Whatever it may be, they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to get an answer. And Jesus is going to come in and they're going, he's going to be like an interior decorator and he's going to just overhaul a few things and, and everything seems just fine. But what happens is the Holy Spirit shows up with a bulldozer because he's going to take out the whole house. The job of the, in sanctification isn't just to fix a few things that you think are wrong. It is to overhaul your thinking, not just to change some of the details about how you think, about that, that are contained in the thinking, but to totally overhaul how we think about life. We have to learn to think in terms of revelation and not in terms of rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism. Now, one of the problems that we see in our culture is that in the founding events of our culture in the, in the 18th century, 19, 18th century, people thought biblically. They thought within a theistic worldview. Now we've gone through, you know, from theism to deism to existentialism to modernism and now to postmodernism, and the average Christian is, is brought up in a culture where he thinks his thinking is so radically different from the thinking of the Bible that he just doesn't understand how, how radical the change needs to be. And, and what the Scripture is uh, emphasizing is this radical change. So one evidence of how we, how we see this affecting things in our culture is in the arena of law. 
And that's why you sit around and you watch TV and you hear about some of these decisions that are handed down in some of the courtrooms and you just scratch your head and say, what in the world is going on? So I wanted to take this, this issue of separation of church and state, which is at the foundation of this, this debate over whether or not you can have the Ten Commandments in a courtroom. And I just want to trace this out to give you an idea of how this historical revisionism works. And it's grounded on the fact that you're, the thinking today is divorced completely from a revelatory idea. See, the, the founding fathers, whether they were actually regenerated Christians or not, believed in objective revelation that there were, even Jefferson, the way, as we'll see from the uh, quote from the Declaration of Independence, even Jefferson understood to some degree the creator-creature distinction. And that's clear in the, in the opening of the Declaration of Independence. See, they thought, at that time, they thought, with, even the unbelievers thought, within a theistic or, to, to a large degree, biblical worldview. Whereas today, the average Christian thinks within a postmodern worldview and wonders why it can't get anywhere. And we wonder why, if we're teaching the Bible like we do at West Houston Bible Church, why people don't want to come to this kind of teaching. It's because they're looking at the Bible from a postmodern worldview, and they think, well, you know, that's just your construct. Somebody else has another construct. The only thing we can do is let's get together and just kind of have a good experience worshiping God, but let's not get into too much content analysis or thought. And so worship services are designed around the idea of giving people a worshipful experience through music, drama, what do, they, what do they call that? Dancing? They've got now praise dancing, all this kind of stuff. And it's all, it's, it takes away from teaching the content of the Word. And all, all these things are, are related to each other. So let's just, uh, we've gone through this. What we have to realize is in history, as it affects everything, ultimate causation <clears throat> comes from outside the circle. It comes from the Creator. You can do a lot of study in law, politics, and economics using rationalism and empiricism, but don't forget that ultimately Jesus Christ controls history, and that's the ultimate causative effect in history. First Amendment of the, of the Bill of Rights says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, if you talk to most people on the street, if they have any intelligence or schooling or whatever, they will firmly believe that the phraseology separation of church and state is found in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. That's not found anywhere. There's a First Amendment right there. Do you find anything like that? Separation of church and state? It's not there. Now, most of you, I only see a few of you who are probably older than, have a birthday that comes before, let's say, 1930. Most of us in here have a birthday that comes somewhat after 1940. And so we have been brought up in an environment where separation of church and state, probably if you hit, if you were born after 1930, you have heard so often this phraseology, separation of church and state, that you do not know how to think outside that framework. That's because you've been brainwashed by paganism. We all have. 
You just hear it over and over and over and over again, and we don't realize how far this nation has slipped in its, in its thinking. The concept of separation of church and state, as it is understood today by most people and by the courts, has nothing to do with how it was originally known. Now, how do we know that? We know that by going back and looking at historical records of what the Founding Fathers said. My, doesn't that sound like biblical exegesis? It certainly does. See, we believe that, that at the very core, that it is the author's intent that gives something meaning, not the reader. See, we live in a different world. We live in a world today where people think that meaning comes from the observer. Meaning is subjective. It, it, you... you uh, you assign meaning to something. Ah, someone else assigns their meaning to it. Everything's this social construct. And so there's a lot of different meanings, and they're all equally valid. But see, that destroys objectivity, and it destroys truth. And that's one reason why modern man is so set against Christianity is because Jesus Christ makes these exclusive claims that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. I mean, that just is a head-on confrontation with how the pagan mind thinks. The pagan mind, the unbelieving mind, does not want to believe that there's one and only one way to God. And Jesus makes this claim. The Bible presents this absolute view of reality. And this is why the Bible, it's okay to believe anything you want to believe except the Bible. You can't believe the Bible because the Bible, biblical thought is automatically going to invalidate all other forms of thinking. Now, we go back and you look at the U.S. congressional records from June 7th to September 25th, 1789, and you discover that the founders' intent was to preclude what they had experienced under the British system. The British system, church and state, were identical so that the head of the Anglican church was in the person of the king or queen. And so every person was taxed to support the church. And the government supported one denomination to the exclusion of all others. What the Founding Fathers wanted was a system where no one denomination would run the nation. Now, one objection that you often hear from some evangelical quarters when you start talking like this, and this just shows how paganism has impacted a lot of evangelicals, is that, well, you know, if you want to give religious discourse that much exposure in the public arena, you know, what you really want is a theocracy. Now, how would you argue that, you know, you don't want a theocracy? Because you never had a theocracy. I mean, if you read what the Founding Fathers said about the role and importance of religion, and by religion they meant Christianity, if you read what they said about, about that, they wanted it to have a center, centerpiece, be the centerpiece of, of public life. They understood that without Christianity there would be no stability in a nation. But they weren't, they weren't theocratists. They didn't want to have a theocracy. They were completely against that. So to give Christianity the, the major place in society doesn't mean you believe in a theocracy. That just shows you're historically ignorant. But that's because you're a product of modern public education system. 
We never had a theocracy other than a small attempt by a few people, by some Puritans in the 17th century, that's the 1600s, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But what you see in, so often in what you've heard probably is an interpretation of history, and interpretation of history is always based on some kind of framework. So is your framework biblical or non-biblical? James Madison, one of the founding fathers, who also was involved in framing the Bill of Rights, was totally against a national religion. But he wasn't against including religious teaching in general in public schools or in public life. Near the end of his life, President James Madison wrote that belief in God was, quote, essential to the moral order of the world. Madison understood the free exercise of religion to mean that there were to be no privileges and no penalties on account of religious belief. He didn't believe that the free exercise of religion meant that it's excluded from public life altogether, which is how it's interpreted today. For Madison, the First Amendment was intended to end things like special religious taxes, religious qualifications for public office, and the enforcement of religious orthodoxy through Sabbath-breaking laws. The original intent of the First Amendment was to exclude a single Christian denomination, that's really important to understand, a Christian denomination from dominating the national scene. And you understand this by reading what happened as they wrote the First Amendment. On September 3, 1789, we have the original version of the First Amendment written. Quote, Congress shall not make any law establishing any religious denomination. Now, what did they mean by religious denomination? By religion, they meant Christianity. It was a homogenous society. They're not talking about Hinduism, Mohammedism. They're not talking about New Age, atheism. They're saying Congress shall not make any law establishing any one of the Christian denominations. The second draft was changed to read, Congress shall make no law establishing any particular denomination. See, they're thinking in terms only of Christianity. Third version, Congress shall make no law establishing any particular denomination in preference to others. And then we come to the final version that day, Congress shall make no law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Very close to the final wording. But what we see by looking at the wording that they used in their argumentation that the term religion and denomination were synonymous. And what they were talking about was different Christian denominations. So the Founding Fathers forcefully opposed any national denomination, but they also opposed the removal of Christian thought from public discourse, social considerations, or public affairs. For example, Fisher Ames, who was one of the Founding Fathers, on September 20th, 1789, offered the final wording for the First Amendment. Certainly he understood what he meant by what he was saying. Later, in 1801, January of 1801, he wrote an article for National Magazine where he expressed concern with the introduction of more and more textbooks in the classrooms of America that the Bible might drift from being at the forefront of the education system to being uh, left out or excluded. He stated that the Bible must always be the foremost book studied in our schools. So here's a guy who wrote the First Amendment, and he says 
the Bible must be at the forefront of what's being used in public schools. That's their intent, not to remove it from the schools, but that no one particular view would be tax-afforded by the government. He goes on to say, Why then, if these books for children must be retained as they will be, should not the Bible regain the place it once held as a school book? See, by... by uh, by 1801, when he, when he wrote this, I've got the wrong date there. The September 20, 1789 is when he offered the final wording. But in 1801, the U.S. had gone through a period of, of spiritual decline. Right after that, they went through what was called the Second Great Awakening. But it's in decline at that point. So he's saying, why shouldn't the Bible regain the place it once held as a school book? Its morals are pure. Its examples captivating and noble. The reverence for the sacred book that is thus early impressed lasts long and probably, if not impressed in infancy, never takes firm hold of the mind. One consideration more is important. And then he goes on to say that one other side benefit is that people will learn to think in good e- and talk in good English. According to Chief Justice William Rehnquist, he comments, that on the day after the House of Representatives voted to adopt the form of the First Amendment religion clauses, which was ultimately proposed and ratified, Representative Elias Boudinot proposed a resolution asking President George Washington to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation. Boudinot said he, quote, could not think of letting the session... Make sure I've got this... Boudinot said, quote, could not think of letting the session pass over without offering an opportunity to all citizens of the United States of joining with one voice in returning to Almighty God their sincere thanks for the many blessings he had poured down on them, according to William Rehnquist. So if the founders passed the First Amendment, then the next day they say, okay, let's have a day of thanksgiving so the whole nation can thank God. They're not, they don't view what they've done as something that's excluding us from uh, excluding the Bible from public discourse. Within two weeks, President George Washington issued a proclamation declaring Thursday, the 26th of November, as a day of thanksgiving. Now, in that, I just just to save time, I want to go to the end of the end of the uh, quote, where he calls upon he he says, let me back up here, starting right about here, to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government. Now, this is what they were to pray for in Thanksgiving, on that first Thanksgiving, to pray that the government would, be wise, would support wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness to us, and to bless them with good governments, peace, and concord. And this is supposed to be the role of government. Note to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue. Hello? The role of government, according to George Washington, was to promote the practice of true religion. And by religion, he meant Christianity. It's clear when you read all the Founding Fathers, that was the verbiage of the day. And the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. Another founding father was Benjamin Rush, who signed the Declaration of Independence and served in the administrations of three presidents, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison. 
He was a great policymaker and the first leading educator to call for public education at, the, at national expense. In an educational policy paper, which he wrote in 1791, Benjamin Rush gave more than a dozen reasons why the Bible should never be removed from public schools. Among those reasons, he listed that, one, that Christianity is the only true and perfect religion, and that in proportion as mankind adopt its principles and obey its precepts, they will be wise and happy. Two, that a better knowledge of this religion is to be acquired by reading the Bible than in any other way. Three, that the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in its present state than any other book in the world. And four, that knowledge is most durable and religious instruction most useful when imparted in early life. What you see reading through the things that the Founding Fathers said is they understood that this had to, education in the Bible had to be early. That the children had to read it so that they would have good moral lives. If you took the Bible out of the classroom, society would collapse because there would be rampant immorality. There would be a, a tremendous rise in the crime rate. And society would begin to fall apart from the inside out, which is exactly what we've seen. <clears throat> Another founding father who was an educator, is a soldier in the Revolution, and a legislator in Connecticut and Massachusetts was Noah Webster. Noah Webster also uh, uh, wrote Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. And according to Webster, all the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. They understood that to separate the Bible from public discourse was to invite political disaster on the nation. Uh, John Adams, later pr uh, president, one of the founding fathers, addressed the military on October 11, 1798, in which he recognized that there was no government in the world large enough to force or coerce people to do something against their will. See, this is the idea. You'll often hear people say this, well, you can't legislate morality. Now, what do you mean by a phrase like that? What does it mean you can't legislate morality? You can't force people to be moral. But it doesn't mean, or, or see, people get the idea of what that means is that laws should, don't have a moral base. What kind of foolishness is that? Every law has a moral base. Every, you're saying it's wrong to commit murder. That's a moral statement. See, laws may not be able to force people to be moral, but laws are designed and are based on a moral and ethical, ethical system. Now, in his statement, he argues that we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. So you can't force people to be moral. So if they're not willing to do it from inside their own soul... The government can't force people to be responsible, to be ethical, and to be moral. So therefore, the government should be involved in doing something that is going to teach morality and ethics and integrity to people. And that came from the Bible. He said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It doesn't work if the populace is immoral and irreligious. See, that's the system we have today. And this is one reason they wanted the Bible taught in the classroom is because just by reading the Bible, young people would understand a system of morality and right 
and wrong. And you get that from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is a foundation for all law in Western, in Western history. The law as we know it that has given the freedoms that we have in Western civilization didn't come from the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire. You go back and you read the laws in the Roman and Greek Empire. If you had a child you didn't want, you could go out and take it outside the city and kill it. I mean, this is barbaric. Where you got real value in law in Western society came from the Bible and it came from the Ten Commandments. It is historical revisionism to, to go into a courtroom and say, well, you can't even historically show the Ten Commandments because they, they had no relationship to, to modern law. And that's basically what they're trying to do. See, they view history as something that you can, you can completely rework. Even Jefferson, the deist, understood this, the creator-creature distinction and that you, you had to have uh, some education in this. In the Declaration of Independence, he wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, where did they come from? Where did those rights come from? Where did your freedoms come from? Did they come from inside that circle I had up there earlier, from inside the creation? No. They come from outside, from the Creator. These are endowed by their Creator. See, when you do away with the Creator... And you do away with the objective, external source of our freedoms. Then freedoms come from inside the circle. What's inside the circle? Government, politicians, tyrants. So that human beings are the ones who define then what rights and freedoms are. If you don't recognize that our rights and freedoms come from God, then they have to come from man. And government becomes the source of freedom rather than God. But that wasn't the intent and understanding of the Founding Fathers. Even unbelievers like Thomas Jefferson recognized that freedom came from God, not from man. George Washington said, gave a farewell address which was frequently printed as a separate document and read in public schools and was required reading for every school child up until the early part of the 20th century. In his farewell address, he explained that America, our roots, and what we must do to survive, and he understood the Constitution. And in his farewell address, he states, of all the dispositions, quote, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. I just love that sentence. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism. That means that if you claim to be an American patriot and you were doing anything to subvert religion and morality, then you're a traitor. You don't have any right to claim that. That Boy, what would that do to most of the Supreme Court judges and federal judges over the last 50 or 60 years and most people in Congress? If you don't think that the Bible has a place in public discourse, then George, according to George Washington, you're a traitor to the founding principles of this nation. You see how history has been subverted by the pagan thought of modernism and postmodernism. In his address, he also reveals how even the founding fathers were already had the seeds of, of, uh, of their own collapse sowed into their thinking. 
He says in that address, whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds, reason and experience. What did I just say? Autonomous reason and experience. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. See, this is the introduction of Enlightenment thought. He's using autonomous reason and experience to buttress his argument, not the Bible. And that's what eventually ate up and is destroying our nation, is that people are looking to reason and experience alone for truth rather than the starting point of the Bible. Well, I have a lot more to go over on this, and we've just barely started, but we've gone way over time, and I don't want you to lose too much concentration as we get to the punchline, but it's important to understand this. We live in an age of judicial tyranny, and we'll come back and finish this up uh, next Sunday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that you are the God of history and that Jesus Christ controls history. We thank you that you are the God who created all things. You created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You have created reality and you define reality, and we know reality from your word. And the most important principle that we learn about reality is that all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift that you have provided for us is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the centerpiece of history is your demonstration of love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is our prayer that there's anyone here this evening that is unsure or uncertain of their eternal life, that they can take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. By putting your faith alone in Christ alone, you can have eternal life. Salvation is based on the simple act of belief, believing that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. At the instant that you believe Jesus died for you, God the Father in his omniscience knows what you believe, and at that instant you are saved. You are regenerate. You receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and you are declared justified. This is an irreversible act, which means you can never lose that salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you might help us to understand the things we studied this evening and that we might learn to think biblically and that we might respond to the challenge of Romans 12:2 to overhaul our thinking and not to be conformed to the thinking of the spirit of the age. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.